Hello and welcome back to Talking Leadership TV. This podcast continues our discussions with Brendan Logue from the Advisory Board Centre. In particular, I spoke with Brendan about the 2023 Megatrend Summit and some key issues that were discussed, including sustainability from an environmental and social governance perspective, issues facing governance boards and the stakeholder economy. Again, thank you for joining us. I will also put a link to the State of the Market Global Report 2023 that was released by the Advisory Board Centre on Tuesday, 6th of June. Thanks again for joining us, but enough from me. I'll hand over to Brendan. You were involved with a Megatrends conference discussion in early May this right. year. Yep. And uh, we, I want to talk about that and some implications from a leadership perspective. So we'll get to the first of, of, of three themed areas I'd like to talk to you about. The first is sustainability. So you talked about that in a certain context. So can you give us some broader detail about what that was at the conference? Happy to, Eric. And, and I was fortunate enough to uh, chair a panel with members of our community. So uh, I might just explain the community first and then get to, to the question, the topic at hand. Um, the our community is a distributed network of independent professionals who choose advisory boards and governance boards as part of what they do. Uh, the majority choose a, a portfolio approach to work rather than just having the, I guess, the typical corporate day job or perhaps entrepreneurial pursuit now. So they are their board level contributors. Uh, but with that context set, every year we bring um, our members together. Uh, this year it was in Brisbane. Um, the One of those themes that you've alluded to was sustainability. Uh, as, as a subset, if you like, of that is was, was a focus on environmental and social governance, which um, is, is a theme that will be very well uh, known, I would expect, by your audience, uh, specifically those in the corporate sphere, because what's coming down the pipe no matter really where you are, geographically speaking, are some expectations in that space. Um, so I was fortunate enough uh, to, to interview some, some global leaders on that panel, uh, one of whom was the current chair of Energy Queensland, for instance, uh, the people that keep the lights on here in our uh, Sunshine State uh, in Queensland. Um, the, the other member uh, of that panel, um, is based in Hong Kong, but she serves a number of, uh, I guess, traditional, you would call them energy companies, both uh, in the Asia Pacific region, um, developed and developing countries. So it's interesting to get that perspective from, uh, from Sarah Fairhurst's viewpoint. The last one, um, Paul Hodgson, he's a gentleman who is the uh, the chair of uh, Manufacturing Institute of Australia. And so from a uh, who consumes energy perspective, uh, that's, a, a, I guess, an area that was uh, of, of great interest to the broader community who are representative of, I guess, business and uh, industry uh, leaders themselves. The, the key takeaways I took from that conversation, if I may, was... It's complex, it's 
the ESG top-down approach as far as um, challenging organizations from accessing insurance financial services in some cases is proving to be a real issue in in developing markets so so Sarah uh, Fairhurst was very uh, forthcoming with an example or a couple of examples that she provided where these um, these power generation companies that he she sits on their boards were struggling to uh, find uh, insurers and in some cases financiers to support their legitimate, uh, I guess, desire to, to stay in business. Um, so it's interesting how ESG is impacting different parts of the the industry paradigm uh, in different ways. Um, but it's uh, it's coming to a to a supply chain near you. It's certainly hitting the consumers here in Australia and around the world in the hip pocket. And it doesn't look like it will abate anytime soon. Let's go to that that social governance um, mm-hmm. idea of what you just talked about. Energy development. Now I'm going to throw uh, maybe a hail mary here. See how you go with this one. Let's but, see how we go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when we talk about energy development, particularly in the first world context, we're talking Australia here in particular. There are going to be winners and losers from that process as we tra- as we transform an economy from fossil based uh, fuel energy sources to renewables. And one one thing I wanted to ask was a discussion. What was a point brought up at all around the divide between urban and rural Australia in terms of energy production? Because I'm hearing that in other contexts that I work. I just thought it interesting to ask you that because when you said at the start. It's complex. I thought, yeah, that's that's not understanding it. It is extremely complex. So have you got any thoughts on that? Or was that a topic that was discussed at all at the conference? It was, and it came from the floor from a primary producer who was an early adopter of solar, for instance, on some of his uh, cattle feedlots and sheds. Uh, but where his properties are, there are no transmission lines, right? And so if it's not solar, it's a diesel gen set. <laughs> and so you have this, this even within a developed country such as Australia, given our, our size, it just makes no commercial sense for an energy distributor to build a set of poles and wires that go out to where a bunch of Australians have their businesses and choose to live. So, yes, my sense is in the urban centres, and uh, sorry, my sense, my sense secondhand in this case, because this came firsthand from the chair of Energy Queensland, was we will continue to have the haves and the have-nots who the haves in, you know, centralised urban cities uh, will, will enjoy the ability to pick and choose because there is an abundance of, well, options available to them and there is the density for them to be able to select yeah i'll just stay on the grid or go off grid if that's what they so choose have an ev what have you uh the challenge is for for sarah zelko and for those in that industry is well what do you do for those who are in Curry and for those who are in mount isa and for those who are industry players in those mineral settings because building some poles and wires out as far as that 
is very, very expensive. So the suggestion is maybe there's some, some middle ground where microgrids are set up. It's really interesting. It probably won't be considered here under this government, but from an energy policy standpoint, in other um, uh, distributed uh, energy demanding economies, such as Canada, for instance, they're putting small scale modular style nuclear reactors, the size of which may well fit into a 40 foot container, for instance, which is just wild to think about. It's an incredible progression from where they've come from um, as a source of energy. It's a little way off, you know, it's still been, being proven, uh, but that is that is something that uh, I would hope we in Australia can uh, work towards because, well, it's clean, it's safe, it's reliable, uh, and it, it exists. We need to be as pragmatic as we can be, realising that there is a, I think there's a global shift to doing something different about our energy mix. I, I get that that is the discussion, but there's still the... Uh, that transition phase and I think it's in that transition phase that we get the hiccups that we see about who wins and who loses and are those that lose in that process actually being considered when the rollout of these things is happening and I, I think it's not done intentionally but the unintended consequences around energy policy have existed for quite uh, some time and I don't think it's an easy fix because if it was um, it would have been done by now. And when you talk about geographical issues, Australia is a big place. And I get that invest investments in particular, not just the energy generation source, but the transmission source is governments don't want to, I think by and large, I, and this is just an observation, don't want to be the energy investor of last resort. They want the market to do something about it. And you know, maybe investing in that, that uber expensive, um, infrastructure discussion is something that most don't want to delve into at the moment but that that's interesting that that was one of the top topic areas Brendan now the other one I wanted to talk to you about you mentioned uh governance and uh governance from the perspective of governance and in that space advisory board so can you unpack that a little bit for us as well please Sure. Uh, and so as part of our our summit uh, was the launch of, to our members at least, the latest State of the Market report, the highlights of which I'll touch on in a moment and more than happy to share that report, which will be released um, just before this this podcast will go live. So, so your members will be one of the, uh, your, your subscribers or listeners will be the first to to review that in many cases. Um, but what was spoken about, which was really interesting and a consequential shift from previous uh, periods where we've where we've uh, done this research analysis and drawn out some insights is that increasingly governance boards are constrained and um, the, the list of expectations on their table only growing. And if I can provide some unsurprising examples of what I mean by that, um, when you think about the nature of who tends to sit around a governance board, they are seasoned corporate executive leaders who may well be the other side of their 
uh, corporate contribution, right? They they now want to pick and choose who they work with, and and for good reason. They hold fiduciary and legal responsibility for that organisation, right? And so, um, Optus. They failed in 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 an area as it related to looking after their customers' data. So cyber risk. That's probably the most public example in recent times where it's clear that that governance board were ill-equipped to 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 cope with the specific and quite narrow demands in that particular domain. The other ones which are emerging and coming down the pipe really quickly are uh, the accelerated adoption of AI um, and let's face it, there are very, very few people who actually know what they're talking about in that space. So the implications for just about every business who are in a service industry, which is just about every business here in Australia, are tremendous. And if they don't know the right questions to ask or if those people around that governance board table have never seen, touched or heard of this stuff before, they're exposed. Other elements such as ESG, which kind of flows on from our last conversation. Again, this is an emerging expectation that you need to be current in terms of being able to respond. And so what does this mean at an aggregate level? There's a greater degree of uh, complexity and volatility and an accelerated fashion. So what are organisations doing? And, and this is kind of the intersection between governance boards and advisory boards is they're choosing to put risky conversations that they're ill-equipped at having because they don't know the right questions to ask nor who to ask them to, is they're putting them elsewhere. They're putting in them in a fit-for-purpose advisory boards that being chaired by somebody who knows what they're talking about and seeking from that advisory board options that they can still maintain responsibility for. So give us an A or B tends to be a reasonable outcome recognising that the 15 options that they might be required to consider, they're ill-equipped to even start to consider. And so the emergence of governance systems where there's certainly a governance boards that being maintained, but where they're putting specific challenging conversations as, a, as it relates to those themes and many others, market entries, acquisition, now that finance, or something again, where do we get capital? All of these kind of consequential strategy level conversations that require attention of deep specialists, uh, either it's a McKinsey's or a Bain conversation, or maybe it's an advisory board conversation if you don't want to go down the 12 month, 18 month consulting route. Kind of a couple of questions that come to mind from there. So, yeah, so the the, the governance uh, space, sorry, is an interesting one for me in that I've worked with and been on boards. I've seen some very um, uh, good operators at the board level, and the boards that I've seen function the best know what they don't know and will outsource to get information in, whether or not they go to an advisory board or set up. Um, in some places, I see them as committees, but they're still part of the business. I think you're talking advisory board, you're talking separate to the business, giving the business advice, or are you talking advisory boards that are um, implemented within the business? That That's a distinction I wasn't quite clear about. Or is there some hybrid of both that tend to operate out there? 
that's what the business is trying to achieve naturally. So, you know, in in the example of a, an advisory board being set up for cyber risk assurance purposes, they will certainly have their chief technology representative there, probably a member of the governance board as a uh, as a conduit to the governance board represented in that in that advisory board or committee or or think tank in some cases they, they refer to them as um, but then you'll have independent experts who whose capability is not represented in the organization right so you can only carry so many deep specialists uh, depending on the scale of your business you can only keep carry so many of them and so where people do this as part of what they do for a living, they go really deep. And so the necessity to do that and seek assurance in this instance, if it's cyber risk assurance, it is evident that you would need internal representatives whose responsibility is to maintain the decision-making role and execute it on the behalf of the CIO or CTO. But you also need perspective beyond those four walls because what's best practice? If you've worked in that organisation for 10 years as the CIO, I'm sorry, but you don't actually know what's happening elsewhere to the degree that you should. And so from a risk profile, you're putting risky conversations elsewhere and seeking assurance from others who are those depth experts in their specific domain. If we pay, if we continue that cyber risk thing. The other thing, you know, the other, the other, uh, if we change the scale of market that we're, or the scale of business that we're referring to, there's a whole bunch of, um, in the business sector now, privately held businesses who are going through some succession planning challenges. And so what do we do with this business? Are we going to carve it up to the next generation? Are we going to sell it and then divvy up the cash? Or does somebody want to take it on? And how will that work? Uh, so there's all sorts of very uh, emotive conversations that are going on within, in some cases, on very sophisticated family businesses because from a dem demographic standpoint here in Australia, a good chunk of those boomers are, they're thinking about, if they're not already doing it, they're thinking about where's my exit and how might that best be affected, which is a key demand area for advisory boards in the business sector. Are we morphing over time away from traditional boards to something else or do we have no other model other than a board um, at this stage because I understand the difference and you've explained this a few times around the difference between an advisory board and a standard governance board but are our boards fit for purpose um is it is it something that needs to change over time is anyone challenging the paradigm or is it the best that we can do given um the complexity of the business world yeah good question and I would say that I don't know anybody through this community, and we've got 580 board professionals in 25 countries. Uh, it's a curated community, and so maybe that's the reasoning for my landing point. I don't know anybody who doesn't recognise that how things are running now may not be how things will look in the future, but they're curious they are humble enough to recognise that, as you say, they don't know everything. And so whether it is additional seats to the board or perhaps carving out an agenda for which 
the governance board is responsible for and and is confident executing you know decisions being made right governance itself and then putting these more creative risk on style conversations elsewhere whether that be in you know consulting houses for support whether they be in think tank type models if they're engaging uh, their customers maybe or whether that be in formalized structured advisory boards for which they're seeking you know perspective beyond what they already know from those who are independent of them so they're not afraid of you know of 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 the um there's no there's no conflict between st people sticking their neck out right and i think so what have governance boards allowed us as a society to do we have a more prosperous outcome we live longer by something like 50 percent uh, so by all metrics our society is going in the right direction the trend suggests if you continue we're going in the right direction so i don't think there is a need to overhaul governance and throw it out in kind of a radical sense my sense is that there will likely be where necessary where businesses have to change and adapt to market conditions, that they not just expect that to come from the board and or the CEO, that there are there are other options available to them and those people have, or they've, they might not have seen the exact circumstance, but it certainly rhymes with what they have seen elsewhere. That's uh, amazingly interesting insight. I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but... Perhaps the future of boards is that the the charter of a board becomes a bit more flexible to take in the things that you're talking about to um, as you recruit people to boards that the board won't know every damn thing because no human can know that but to have the tools and the um, the capability within that board to outsource and have some other discussions in other contexts through the use of say advisory, committees boards think tanks to help them be better decision makers that that that's interesting to me and that um and yeah and i wasn't for a minute um suggesting we need to get rid of boards altogether i'm i'm just one that likes to think a few steps ahead and boards have been around for more longer than i've been and will be into the future but everything gets challenged i think that's worth challenging and um the conversation around what how can how can boards do their jobs better is I think a fruitful discussion to have. Uh, your community wouldn't exist if that's something that they weren't actively thinking about. Um, to the degree that I'm not an advocate for getting rid of boards altogether, because you need someone to ensure that there's some transparency in decision making. That um, there's that uh, the eye on that. Um, if I can use an antiquated term, that triple bottom line. So social, economic, and um, environmental you need boards for that so cannot disagree with you there look brendan the last area i'd like to talk to you about is uh you coined this phrase before we had the discussion i'm interested to unpack this the this that stakeholder economy um can you talk a bit about that and what what was discussed at the conference for us mm -hmm. sure so, so i mean this is another big topic like esg right that that um thanks to the advancements of, of technology. And I think uh, the consumer uh, shift 
in expectations and their ability to to really impact positively or negatively uh, your business it, it, you could argue has never been um it's never been more consequential that that, that each consumer or each customer or each stakeholder be given a good experience, right? Um, and and so I think in in that with with, with that kind of uh, being accepted, what we were talking about was actually in the paradigm of sport. So Brisbane twenty thirty two, uh, we will host the Olympic Games, the Summer Olympic Games, which I as somebody who has a real passion for sport and and a and a leader of a, a community sporting organisation, I'm tremendously excited about because I think about well, will members of our community be represented at that games, and wouldn't that be a you know just an amazing thing for me to share with my kids, for instance? And it's like, this is where you could be. So so in the in the stakeholder economy space, what we unpacked was, well, what do members of the community say, the customers? of if Brisbane was a, a, a business or if Brisbane, uh, the, the rate payers were your customers, um, are we meeting their expectations as far as what's coming? And maybe, you know, if we introduce a theme such as legacy, which is always spoken about around the games, what if we were to bring forward legacy? So instead of waiting for legacy to happen after the fact, uh, let's bring forward legacies that relates to infrastructure, for instance, and the promotion of sport as a means to develop, uh, well, individuals, but also how individuals work within organisations and systems. As we think about what we've come through during the COVID years in particular, where we became a far more fractured and inward-facing individual-focused society, I think this holds so much hope as well as risk for those businesses who are involved in serving, which is just about every business, uh, or at least 80% of businesses around Australia. We're, we're a service-based economy now. So the consideration for not only my customers, not only my shareholders, but what my brand, how my brand is perceived and uh, the power of people who's, who I don't really have all that much to do with is, is evident and it is both an opportunity and a risk for those who understand it. Something I drew from your response there was, a, was around um, the, the, the business and uh, those providing services in a service-based economy, like you're saying that Australia is, that um, what kind of citizen are we in that space? I think that's kind of what you're getting at there. And when you talk about bringing legacies forward, I hadn't heard of that as a concept. So, yeah, you think after a Games, uh, for me, I'm a World Cup soccer tragic so for me if we can get a world cup in brisbane well, the, the girls well... <laughs> the girls are coming here soon there's yeah. one happening just around the corner yeah so uh, again that around that um not just paying it forwards but paying it backwards is an interesting concept that building that infrastructure the things that we need that will provide that uh legacy well after the games is is quite um quite an interesting space to play in. Brendan, look, thank you for going through uh, some of what was touched on in your conference. Obviously, there were some 
very fruitful conversations. And I'd, I'd want to ask you, um, just to conclude the discussion here, your overall sense of what was presented at the conference from a leader perspective, if you were in that audience, I'll get you to pitch yourself not as facilitating in one of the discussions, but you're out in the audience. What would be your key takeaways from from that um, from the event? People choose to get involved within our community who who share a an optimistic outlook. The currency of a good advisory board, and so therefore a good contributor to an advisory board, is intelligence that can be actionable to the recipient of that advice. So, if I may share the kind of the overwhelming. Uh, uh, takeaway for me was a sense of optimism in spite of what appears to be a more rapidly evolving um, landscape for businesses and their leaders. And so just, to, I guess, throw a stat in there to, to kind of point to the increase that we're observing for demand and those contributing to advisory boards. Over the last three years, we've seen a um, about a 2.6 million increase. Now, those are those are professionals who are contributing to advisory boards. 2.6 million more people are contributing to advisory boards than three years ago, which is just an astonishing statistic. The challenge for us as the advisory board centre is, in many ways. Uh, and this is observable from, from our past research, they're making it up as they go along. <laughs> and so us as the standard bearer, we've got some work to do to get across, uh, you know, even if it is a small fraction of those, to build capability and understanding such that their contribution is ethical, measurable and repeatable. And so if we build the sector's reputation, in essence, that's our role is to help buttress and, and create a new sector which is rapidly growing to ensure that they have an assessment or an understanding of what good looks like uh, seems a worthy cause. And I've certainly, and my, my team and members of the organization have our work cut out for us. Thank you for joining us again, Brendan. I'll make available links to uh, your work and what you've been doing. And I'll put a link to the, uh, the, outlook, the state of the market, uh, report. The state of the market report. Sorry that Thanks, you said Eric. you'd make available. Yeah. I'd, Love people to have a look at it. And uh, yeah, thank you again for your time, mate. Thank you for having me, Eric. Thanks again for joining us. We've been speaking with Brendan Logue from the Advisory Board Centre. As always, thank you for following the podcast. Please drop a like or subscribe to help the channel grow. Have a great rest of the week and we'll catch you on the next episode of Talking Leadership TV.